0: You are listening to the Podcast for Nerdy Christians, a show for progressive followers of Jesus who also happen to love Hogwarts, Hobbits, and building magical swamps in the corridors of Hogwarts. This is season three and three quarters, episode two, Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. I'm Carrie Combs and I'm grateful to be sitting across the internet from Adam Thomas. Hey, Adam.
1: Hi, Carrie.
0: We're reading Harry Potter five this week (laughs) for this time, um, which I jokingly in high school nicknamed the Caps Lock Harry book because he screams and yells in Caps Lock at least 20 times. I counted it once. It's a lot. This is a very emotional book.
1: Indeed it is. Yeah. I, I, when, you know, when you pointed it out to me earlier this week, I started noticing it in the book too. And, and it, it's, it's funny, especially since when I read this book, it was really before I was texting people. You know, so I, it wasn't or really before social media was big because I read it in mm-hmm, 2003. Mm-hmm. So Facebook hadn't even come out yet, right? So we didn't really think of all caps as being yelly on the internet, right? Hmm. It, it just wasn't wasn't as big a thing, so.
0: But you um, know he's yelling in this book. Like, oh, yeah. I think it says he yells and then there's caps lock.
1: Yeah, which JK was Ralling, like even precursor more yelling. Of,
0: yeah, there's a lot. And he's 15, that's that's a time in a person's life, hopefully.
1: I, I was 15 once.
0: I was 15 once. I was Maybe I was 15 around when this book came out or slightly yeah, that younger.
1: About, that sounds about right because I was 15 in the mid-90s and you're okay, younger was, than me. I, was, so.
0: I think when this book came out in 2003, I would have been about 13, but I was... I was looking oh, ahead i did end up catching up to the characters and eventually surpassing their ages because the uh, books did not come out once a year right but but it was synchronized for a little while it was you know weird way and in a nice way that's um, fun
1: that's fun yeah i was always too old for the for the books but um i was like the i was like the <laughs> age of like the older weasley brothers
0: yeah, the like the cool older college
1: yeah, phase right. the, of the life. The cool ones. The cool um, college I, I was, phase. <laughs> I was cool in college. I had sure. that
0: experience, definitely.
1: If you listened to last episode, you'll know that we are skipping from book three to book seven in our main season podcast time. And so we're taking this opportunity to. Have a three episode mini season and talking about Harry Potter's four, five, and six, the longest of the books. Mm-hmm. And uh, we are just doing one episode on each. However, at some point in the future, we will come back and hit some themes and such from these middle books. Um, like we've talked a couple of times about talking about house selves in, a, in an episode, yes. and they're not just in book four, they are pretty important in book five as pretty, well. So, yeah, very important. We won't be talking about them today, but we will be talking about them at some point um what's our scripture quotation today carrie
0: our scripture quotation today is in the first letter of john chapter 4 verses 18 through 19 it goes there is no fear in love but perfect love drives out fear because fear expects punishment the person who is afraid has not been made perfect in love we love because god first loved us
1: And our nerd quote is Professor Dumbledore talking to Harry in chapter 37 of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix called The Lost Prophecy. There is a room in the Department of Mysteries that is kept locked at all times. It contains a force that is at once more wonderful and more terrible than death, than human intelligence, than forces of nature. It is also perhaps the most mysterious of the many subjects for study that reside there. It is the power held within that room that you possess in such quantities and which Voldemort has not at all. That power took you to save Sirius tonight. That power also saved you from possession by Voldemort because he could not bear to reside in a body so full of the force he detests. In the end, it mattered not that you could not close your mind. It was your heart that saved you. Unfortunately, last week I set a precedent that I would... uh summarize these uh, middle Harry Potter books as quickly as I possibly could so we're just going to give Harry Potter 5 which is the longest Harry Potter book I think it's the same length as 1, 2, and 3 combined Probably, <laughs> really yeah, close. It's, long. It, uh, it's very long It's pretty close Alright, so here we go <clears throat> Harry is back at Privet Drive and nobody is sending him any information, he's really, really angry um, I'm going to say he's really, really angry several times in the next few minutes He goes uh, walking and ends up seeing Dudley and they get attacked by uh, Dementors and And Harry uses the Patronus charm and gets rid of them, and it's really exciting. And then he gets expelled from school, and his wand is going to get snapped in half. But that doesn't really end up happening. He ends up with the Order of the Phoenix at number 12, Grimmauld Place, which is Sirius's house. It's seriously uh, gross Mm, and full of dark magic-y stuff. Um, But that's for later in the story. Um, None of the kids that are there are able to be part of the Order of the Phoenix, which really cheeses them off. But it's because Mrs. (laughs) Weasley said that they couldn't be, and she's the overprotective mom. Mr. Weasley brings Harry to his hearing at the Ministry of Magic, which is underneath muggle London. And it's the, the time of the hearing has changed and then Dumbledore appears anyway, even though it seems like Fudge has tried to set it up so that Dumbledore couldn't come to the hearing. And what's that? It's in the Gamut uh, chambers as opposed to like the office of the head oh, of the magical t- law enforcement. Yeah. It's whatever. Uh, anyway. So this is where we meet the horrible professor Umbridge um, who is an undersecretary of something or other. <clears throat> and uh, through some, uh, th- through making sure that the Wiz- and Gamma actually follow their own rules, Dumbledore gets Harry off with the help of Mrs. Fig, who is a squib. All right. We go back to number 12, Grimmauld Place, where um, they get rid of some of the dark magic stuff. We meet Creature, who is a kind of nasty house elf. House? Well, I can't say that. A nasty house elf, who is owned by the Black family. Um, all right. So they end up... I don't know if anything else happens at that point, but they end up back at school, um, and... What's this? That awful woman from Harry's hearing is the new defense against the dark arts teacher. And she is pretty awful. She's literally the Um, worst. So the year begins and then they go to this defense against the dark arts class. And what's this? They're not actually going to learn any magic. They're only going to learn learn the theory. That's no good. I've got an idea, says Hermione and Ron. Let's create a a secret society uh, where Harry can teach us all how to do defensive magic because he's really good at it. So they create Dumbledore's army. But for some reason, they met in the Hogshead, uh, which meant that now Umbridge knows all about it. And she has been appointed the Hogwarts High Inquisitor by Cornelius Fudge. And now the Ministry has this foothold at Hogwarts and Umbridge begins to uh, promulgate these educational decrees more and more of them all of the clubs are disbanded uh, the Quidditch team can't play and they get kicked off the Quidditch team and, oh, no. and all this Ron becomes the keeper and so forth at, the, at uh, Umbridge's first class Harry talks about Voldemort coming, uh, coming back and she gives him a week of detention he goes to her office and he must write I must not tell lies over and over again in his own blood and it comes up as a scar on his hand which is is awful it is Ugh. really really gross anyway he's not going to complain because he doesn't want to give her the satisfaction but his friends see it and they're like what the heck dude you got to do something about this um we're going to fast forward a little bit to christmas time where harry is having all of these dreams of long corridors uh that lead to these locked doors and he's still angry all the time he doesn't really know why partly because he's a 15 year old boy maybe there's other reasons hormones
0: um, it's definitely hormones, just hormones big
1: big big hormones oh because he was really into cho chang We'll get to that. Well, no, we won't. Eh, I'm just going to say he's into really Cho Chang. Relevant. Not really plot relevant, except eh. that her friend is the one that, that ratted them out. <clears throat> oh, yeah. Anyway, so um, Harry in one of these dreams, he feels like he's a snake and the snake attacks Mr. Weasley, but it actually happened. And at Christmas time, they go and they visit Mr. Weasley at St. Mungo's in London, where they also see Neville Longbottom visiting his parents, who had been a uh, Cruciatus cursed so badly that they had their minds completely addled by mm-hmm. the Cruciatus curse. Very, very sad part of the book. They end up back at school, and Dumbledore makes sure that Harry has occlumency lessons with Professor Snape. But they don't go so well, because Snape hates Harry, and Harry hates Snape. And so instead of actually learning Occlumency, which is, you know, closing your mind to other people's magic, uh, Harry basically has the opposite thing happen. Um, (laughs) One of the times that they meet, uh, he invades Snape's mind and sees his own father, James Potter, being absolutely atrocious to Snape Mm -hmm. in a memory. Um, All right, we're going to fast forward a little bit more. Hagrid comes back. Hagrid's got a giant brother named Grop, and they're in the forest. That's fine. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And then... The year continues and everything gets worse and worse and worse at hogwarts the inquisitorial squad is made which is basically slytherins trying to get everybody else in trouble dumbledore's army which is the defense against the dark arts club was set up they're all learning their magic great in the room of requirement and then it all goes wrong and um is it after their owls that they get they get found out
0: no i think it's it's before because during owls is when they all go to the ministry
1: Right, 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 right. Okay. Anyway, so they all get, they get found out and, um, they have their OWLs, um, Fred and George, instead of taking any WTs, they fly out on their brooms causing a big ruckus because they're going to go start their, yeah, really good soundtrack in the movie. Uh, they're going to go start their joke shop in London. Um, so fast forward a little bit further, we're getting to the climax of the book now. And, um, harry's continuing to have these dreams and 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 these visions and in one of them he sees sirius black being menaced by lord voldemort in in the ministry of magic and he goes oh i need to go save sirius but first let me go just like look in on the fire and see if he's there and creature the house self says uh oh, yeah i haven't seen him he's somewhere i don't know um <laughs> Uh, and then so harry along with ron hermione neville luna lovegood who's also in this book and i haven't mentioned her yet um and ginny <laughs> and, yep, and, yep, and good and ginny go to the ministry and they go and they they end up in the department of mysteries which is the end of this corridor that harry's been dreaming about all year and they find the prophecy that is about harry and then the death eaters attack and there's big scuffles and everybody gets hurt and then the order of the phoenix arrives and And tries to save the day, but Bellatrix Lestrange kills Sirius Black. He falls into the veil, and he is... Gone. During this scuffle, the uh, prophecy smashes on the floor, never to be heard. Then Voldemort comes and possesses Harry and, well, no, Voldemort comes and fights Dumbledore in the ministry. And to escape, Voldemort possesses Harry and Dumbledore has to choose between saving Harry and fighting Voldemort. And Dumbledore, of course, chooses Harry. Voldemort gets away, but not, uh, not before Cornelius Fudge, the Minister of Magic, sees him and finally admits to Dumbledore that Dumbledore was right all along. There's a Mm -hmm. whole bit about uh, Professor Umbridge getting uh, attacked by centaurs, which I missed. It's a little inappropriate, Uh, yeah. But that that all happens uh, because she's horrible. Um, So we come back to Hogwarts and uh, Harry and Dumbledore talk in Dumbledore's office. And Dumbledore explains... Almost everything to Harry uh, talks about why he has hmm. to go back to Privet Drive, which is because of the love of his mother going through his aunt makes it so that he is protected from Voldemort. At the time, he keeps explaining uh, up until the point of uh, showing Harry the memory of the prophecy, which is the only reason that Professor Trelawney is at the school. And uh, the prophecy states that the one that Voldemort marks that was born at the end of July um, is the one that's going that neither can live while the other survives. And so we now know that Harry either has to murder or be murdered um, at some point later. Uh, So the book ends with uh, the, with everybody going back and the war, the second war has begun. How'd I do?
0: That was incredible, especially considering dear, faithful listeners that I tried three times to do the summary and got bogged down on chapter one. So I want to say A plus, Adam. <laughs> it's a wild ride. Difficult task. We'll see if maybe I can handle six. It's a little shorter. Listen to it a little bit more recently, but my goodness. There is a lot going on in this book. And when we were thinking about what we wanted to talk about, there's a lot of themes that we wanted to lift up. Not enough to merit going chapter by chapter like we have done in times past. We're still happy with the three and three quarters uh, segment we're doing here. But there's a lot of big stuff happening in this book, not just Harry's big boy emotions. Uh, So where do we want to start?
1: Why don't we start there, actually? Let's start because the book basically begins with Harry Mm. being furious all the time.
0: That's right. And by the time we get to six, although he's still grieving serious, he's not caps lock Harry anymore. So this book really is showing a lot of Harry's anger. And as a person, I'll admit, from a who's pretty afraid of anger, both my own and others, who was taught that, especially as a girl, expressing anger is not okay. I should be just sad all the time instead. Not all the time. I should be sad instead of angry. Anger is an, an emotion that I'm coming to terms with and really when I was reading this book as a 13 year old did not appreciate having to read caps lock, Harry. now as an adult, I appreciate this because Harry's angry about some things that are trivial and perhaps could be solved with like a healthy conversation, but he's also expressing anger about injustices and things that are deeply wrong in the world um, and in his life and the way he's been kept out of important conversations um, by the grownups like Dumbledore. And I Respect that. I think anger is valid, and Harry is expressing extremely valid anger throughout this book.
1: So what are the things that you identify as the valid things that he is expressing anger about?
0: Grief in the end, I'd say. I'm trying to remember what else he gets angry about. I, I In preparation for this podcast, I kind of re- revisited the beginning and the end. So I'm sure there's a lot in the middle. Um, but towards, you know, in the, in the end, when he's raging in Dumbledore's office during the Dumbledore download, he has just lost like the one parental figure aside from Hagrid, who we always forget when we talk about, anyway, that's a sidebar. Um, so he's raging about Sirius's death, his like quasi father slash brother figure. Um, and he's angry at Dumbledore essentially for like, letting it happen. Um, Also, Dumbledore says, I know how you feel, Harry, which, you know, that short circuits my anger immediately. He doesn't know how he feels. I mean, he's experienced something similar, but not the same.
1: Yeah, it's one of the things that we are taught not to say in pastoral conversations with people. Even if you had what you consider a similar experience, doesn't mean that you've processed it the same way. What you can say is, I'd like to know how you feel if you feel comfortable expressing it to me or please help me understand how you feel Mm -hmm. better yet just sit there while somebody rages for a while and then when Mm -hmm. they when their rage breaks and they start crying give them comfort because it will happen.
0: And that's what happens at the end of this book. You know, Harry's throwing all the silver instruments and, you know, destroying Dumbledore's possessions. And Dumbledore's calm, aside from his gaff and saying, I know how you feel, Dumbledore does receive that anger well. He does not tell Harry to be quiet or sit down or shut up. He receives it all um, very kind of gracefully and placidly. And then once Harry's burned out that rage and is ready to sit down and catch his breath, Dumbledore's there with some answers. And really from the beginning, this book has been about withholding answers from Harry. Um, Why is he alone at the Dursley's house all summer? Why are his friends presumably together but not telling him where they are or what they're doing why isn't he getting any information in the news about you know the rise of this magical dictator it's all you know at this point Voldemort's operations very secretive and shadowy but harry does not know that yet he wasn't there the first time so he doesn't i mean so he doesn't know how how the kind of game works at this point, he's expecting an attack like yesterday. And he's just constantly on edge at the beginning of the book, waiting and waiting. And then he gets these little tantalizing hints from his friends um, and nothing from Dumbledore. And throughout the book, Dumbledore will not look at him, not speak to him, treat him what seems like indifference, but is actually calculated protection, but doesn't explain why. And it's so frustrating to read.
1: His reasons at the end of the book about wanting to spare Harry the pain mm-hmm. um are, are valid. Uh, although yeah. he he recognizes that he's made the choice to spare the pain of one person while perhaps putting thousands at risk. Mm-hmm. Um so he's he's kind of failing the the this end of Star Trek two. The needs of the many outweigh the needs oh, of, the, sure. of the few yeah. or the one. You know, that's Spock when he's dying in the than the torpedo I have seen Star too. Trek
0: 2 in a long time. Oh,
1: it's so good. <laughs> Worth a re-watch. Anyway, best Star Trek movie. Just watch movie. the
0: one with the whales. No, the one with the whales.
1: <laughs> I do love, I will say, Star Trek 4 <laughs> is phenomenal. It's so good. It's All such right, a but good but movie. But Dumbledore, anyway, Dumbledore says, Dumbledore. you know, who, yeah. who
0: am I to care that you know na- thousands of nameless and faceless creatures in the future might, yeah. might be slaughtered, I think is the word Disease he says. Is slaughtered. And just, it, just Nameless and faceless.
1: You. That's the thing, yeah. nameless and faceless. I mean, how often do we ignore the the suffering of others, or, you know, even in our own neighborhoods, but really around the world, because mm-hmm. we don't have a proximity to them.
0: And unlike Dumbledore, it's not out of love for a specific person. It's out of, out of either ignorance or fear, or not being aware of the multitude, the multiple layers of evil that are all at work in our world that we without consciously, we consciously, and we unconsciously play into. I'm thinking of, you know, like the, you know, the clothing industry. And so every time we buy a t-shirt from Walmart, we're contributing to human misery and suffering all around the world. Um, The degradation of our planet through production of these, these crops that leach the nutrients from the earth. Um, And we don't do that out of love for a person necessarily. It's just the way our world works. And in this case, you know, Dumbledore is saying he's going to sacrifice future people to keep Harry happy, which I think is a more noble cause, but it's still problematic.
1: What you just said reminded me of a book um, from by Brian McLaren from years and years ago called Everything Must Change, mm. where he he, he uh, framed what you're just talking about as the suicidal systems of the world or the suicide hmm. machines of the world, mm-hmm. I think is the terms he used. The sh- suicidal machinery of the world, I think is the term he uses. And the idea there is basically we, we've we created as a society these the, the machinery of of all of the interlocking systems and those those systems are killing us mm-hmm. killing some people quicker than others but eventually killing everybody because those 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 machines those systems are so big it's hard for us to figure out how we are going to slot ourselves into a specific corner of it to mm-hmm. help to to alleviate the the problems of those of those systems
0: one of the reasons we have a general confession every not every week but Most you know a lot of times in worship is that we're part of systems that we don't know those those suicide systems that um, Brian McLaren calls them. We take steps to get to learn as much as we can, and we have to be absolved of sins we're not even aware of.
1: The General Confession in the Episcopal Church is plural for a reason. You know, you you mentioned before about Harry's rage and grief and. When we 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 extend that scene past him going to see Dumbledore, he goes out and he sees his friends for a little bit, but then they start talking. Their talk sort of edges towards serious, and so he's like, I got to get out of here. He goes and sees Hagrid. Same thing happens. And so he goes and sits by the lake. Mm. And it's at the lake where he, you know, to, takes a deep breath and starts crying. And it's still obviously very raw, because this just happened the day before. But this cycle that he's gone through has gone from rage into sadness and will probably cycle back to rage again at some point, because that's how grief works.
0: Also, Harry forgot, this is not really relevant to the plot, but those two way mirrors.
1: Yeah. That
0: the whole thing, if Harry, again, this is one of those parts of the book that if I just, if I read each time I'm like this time, he'll remember that he's got a mirror Mm -hmm. that he can just talk to Sirius on.
1: And he finds it at the very end and remembers (sighs) that he had it. And and it's just sort of like another twist of the knife in his gut.
0: That's a good point. Yeah, because because Harry takes Sirius's death very deeply to heart. He blames Dumbledore later and and rages at him. But in the immediate aftermath of the showdown at the ministry, he feels guilty and fully responsible, not just for Sirius's death, but for his friends involvement for the danger that they put themselves in and we've talked about this before about Harry's kind of hero complex of needing to be the one responsible and therefore the others in danger others putting themselves at risk is intolerable for him because he feels responsible for them and if they were to get injured in the line of supporting him or joining him that would be terrible at, for him not not coming into the not remembering the fact that They have as much agency as he does. He's got that hero mentality of it's got to be me. And up until the point where he learns that, yes, it it really will have to be him one day with Voldemort, but doesn't know that up until the end of this book.
1: When we think about the concept of guilt here, we have to, let's start at the end of Sirius falling through the veil. All right. Let's just sort of walk backwards the, mm-hmm. the various actors in the book that take place, take that take part in this, right? Yep. You have Sirius who has just been hit by, I assume by, no, it's, it's it's a Kadavra but it's a red
0: spell. My goodness. Spell. I okay. have overanalyzed this. Okay.
1: So it's not a Kadavra It's not. Okay. So, but he gets hit by Bellastrix, by Bellastrix. He gets <laughs> hit. He gets hit by Bella. Wow. I can't say it.
0: Bellatrix.
1: Bellatrix. Golly. I don't want to put an S in her name for some reason. Um, he gets hit by Bellistrix and falls through the veil, all right, so why is the veil there at all?
0: It is a the embodiment of death that they study in the Department of Mysteries. Did I get that right? Okay. I kind of didn't really figure it out until I was older.
1: so you don't think it's the th- the way that they do capital punishment in the wizarding world?
0: Oh my God, that's what I
1: think it's that's what I think it's for. Oh,
0: that's why it's in like a courtroom. oh, gross, yeah. Yeah, probably.
1: What if this veil originally, you Boy. know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, perhaps when maybe in a little a less enlightened time was, was the way that they, quote unquote, painlessly you know, had the state execute people. Some of the blame for Sirius's death goes to the fact that this item even exists. Okay. And is there. Right. Because mm-hmm. any of the kids could have just run through that and died. That's right. Right. Yeah. Um, so then we have Bellatrix who actually cursed Sirius. Mm-hmm. She's to blame. We have Sirius who made the choice to go to the ministry at all to protect his godson.
0: We have Tonks who was fighting Bellatrix and who gets knocked out or something. And then Bellatrix is fighting Sirius that Hermione in the next book will be like, oh, she feels guilty. It's survivor's guilt. Just putting that mm. out there.
1: We have Creature who kind mm. of manipulated everybody in the situation.
0: We have Snape who goaded Sirius into just being like, oh, it must be nice to sit at home on my thumbs doing nothing while other people are risking their necks.
1: Wow, that was a good quotation. There you go. Good job. That
0: was that was just me summarizing. Well, Not a good sounded, Snape voice,
1: but it sounded it sounded very Snape like.
0: Be nice to stay at home.
1: Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Alan. That's Rickman.
0: terrible, Alan Rickman. Uh,
1: so then we have, and then of course you have Voldemort for putting, you know, just be basically being the big bad at all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then, so a small portion of all of this ends up laying at Harry's feet in that he is the one who went to the ministry and caused the order of the Phoenix to have to come and rescue him.
0: He's kind of like the catalyst, mm-hmm. you know, like he kicks off his, his true. It's his discreet action of like going there um, kicked off the chain of events.
1: Yeah. And he, and he actually was being manipulated by Voldemort the whole time anyway, because the reason that Voldemort shows him that the attack of Mr. Weasley, is to make Harry think that all of the things that he's seeing through Voldemort's visions are real. So yes, Harry bears some of the responsibility for this, but he wants to put every ounce of it on himself because of his guilt, because Mm -hmm. he feels guilty and therefore he tries to take full responsibility. And I think that that's a a pretty natural response to guilt. I must be fully responsible for this um, because I feel guilty. So, Mm -hmm. so I, and if I feel guilty, then there must be a reason for that guilt. And then you end up laying a lot more blame on yourself than you really need to.
0: And that's like typical, again, that's typical Harry. So, you know, when they're in Dumbledore's office and Dumbledore first arrives, he says, you know, you'll be pleased to hear that none of your fellow students are going to suffer lasting damage from the night's events. And Harry interprets that as Dumbledore reminding him of the amount of damage he had caused by his actions tonight. So Dumbledore is merely seeking to reassure him, but Harry, again, taking responsibility, therefore feeling guilty and trying to take it all on his shoulders, typical hero fashion, um, feels like, you know, he's pretty sure Dumbledore's not accusing him, but he feels it. He's going to see that in every action from here on out.
1: Harry puts motivations on other people that aren't actually there. The number of times he starts yelling at Ron and Hermione.
0: Oh my God, yeah.
1: Because of this displaced you know, anger. Mm-hmm. It, it, there's a lot of transference going on here. Yeah. Um, thankfully, because Hermione's awesome, she does <laughs> not take, she doesn't take it. Every time this happens after yep. like the first the first time she's just sort of like taken aback by it, but every time it happens after that, she she calls him out on it.
0: In her like typical cool and logical and kind of smarmy, smart, snarky, snark, snarky,
1: snarky, Smark,
0: smarky, smarmy like smarky. and snarky. Anyway, she calls him out on in her typical logical and snarky fashion. Like when he's like, none of you will look at me and Ron or Jenny's like, you won't look at us. And Hermione is just like, maybe you're looking at each other and you just keep missing. <laughs> it's like not appreciated by him in the moment, but my goodness, she knows how to inject Herself in a healthy way to these conversations and interrupt that 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 problematic pattern he's getting in.
1: Yeah, it, it's there's just so much of that, and and she just keeps saying, "Harry, we're not the ones that you're angry about, angry at. We're the ones you're angry near." And ooh, and ooh. that is that is something that is so common in our own lives. I mean, how often do we get angry at the people we live with? <laughs> Even though the things we're angry about really don't have anything to do with those people, but they're the people who we are yeah. close to, mm-hmm. and they're the people that it's safe to be angry around. I I sort of stole that from Robin Williams in Dead Poets Society, where where he mm. uh, he's saying at one point he says we're not laughing at you, we're laughing near you.
0: <laughs> but no, you're right. Like being being angry at versus near, and and that is so true. I mean, throughout these books, Harry has never had a kind of safe environment. He is full of ten. 10 years of anger and loss and pain and rage, essentially. It comes out as, you know, I guess if we're thinking back to like, you know, as a young girl, I was taught not to be angry. So I just showed sadness. Harry was not allowed to have any emotion aside from, compliance and blankness Mm -hmm. and so he never had a safe place to express his emotions and now he has friends that he is pretty sure will stick with him until the very end so you're right he will take it out on them and he's known also like he can fight with them and get mad at them and make up and be friends again Mm -hmm. so he is taking it out on those around him and it's probably something that he's not used to ever having to think about because if he had shown anger to the Dursleys growing up it would be you know no meals for a month
1: our emotional development, if we are subjected to trauma, will sometimes halt at the at the at the age of the trauma.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, I'm not a psychologist, so I'm not gonna. I've, I've, <laughs> I'm not. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying that I'm an expert on this or anything. But when we are seeking to understand, um, you know, uh, s- somebody's kind of t- sort of totality of their being, one of the things that we can think about is, you know, where 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 is your trauma? And how how has that trauma affected you moving forward? I just read a book on a concept called um, uh, inner family systems theory. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called uh, Restoring Relationship by Molly Lacroix, and it's fantastic. And it's all about how we have within us, a, a, you know, a system a family system within our own body. Like uh, we have all these different parts, right? And we have parts to protect us and sometimes they protect us in good ways and sometimes they protect us in un- unhealthy ways. And we have these exiles, th- these, these parts of us that because of trauma, we have exiled deep within us and those mm. protectors are keeping us from um, hurting those exiles. And um, and so one of the things that we can do to become a more whole person you know to heal from, from that trauma is to befriend those protectors, which will then unlock uh, the doors to those exiles and then befriend those exiles as well and then come back into a more holistic system. And, and I think that with with Harry and his anger, what we're seeing is his protector, coming in full force. There's they they're, they're, there's one of the protectors is the firefighter, which is the one that just comes out, you know, kind sure. of full full bore. <laughs> and I think that that's Harry's main protector. And it, the the exile for Harry is, of course, the fact that his entire life, really, he didn't have an emotional support system at all.
0: And that's all of that. I mean, A, I need to put that book on my reading list. So thank you for uh, a recommendation there. And it's important for us to know as people of faith, because yes, we believe that, you know, the love of God can heal us and that we are called towards being reconcilers of ours between ourselves and ourselves between us and God and us in the world. But we are hurt in in the world we have. The world is full of of sin and pain and death and trauma. And if we just think, you know, just pray it all away. Mm-hmm. Th- that prayer is an important tool. But things like family systems theory. Uh, therapists, medication, working, you know, building relationships um, with healthy support systems, all of that is are the gifts that we have in this world to heal the trauma that we have at the hands of others in our lives Adam and I are lucky to be in a, a denomination that supports all of that. and so you know reading a book like that like family systems can be part of our work and it we're not psychiatrists or psychologists, but we need to be informed in what's going on around us and in ourselves in order to be you know better healers of um, in the church sense.
1: And I think what you said there about the fact that we we exist in a world that's in need of reconciliation and we also need to be reconciled within our own self is really important. It actually brings us into kind of our last big topic today, uh, which has to do with Professor Umbridge.
0: Well, we can just skip her. We'll just, she's, she's the worst.
1: <laughs> Sorry, I can't skip her. And him? I, I, no, don't no, do that to me. <laughs> uh, him. Dolores Umbridge, um, described in the book as this sort of frog looking woman. Um, however, I I really <laughs> love the the actress that they got to play her in the Imelda movies. Staunton. Who just does the character so perfectly because she seems so innocuous, and then you and then she actually does something and you're like, ooh, this person. Yeah.
0: She's a be and she's like a beautiful woman. Like Amelda Staunton's a beautiful woman and the The character of Umbridge is all sugar and spice and frilly bows and pink tweed.
1: Yeah, F- sugar and spice and nothing nice.
0: No, she is the worst. She is many people's worst, least favorite character in all these books.
1: Which is kind of on purpose, I think. Uh, you know, Umbridge itself. I mean, her name is just perfect.
0: Like an, um, I think of like an umbrella popping open oh. in front of me. Like <laughs> get away. That's good. Uh, I like like, that. like Indy's father with the. Indiana oh, yeah, Jones' father and, yeah, with the birds. Yeah. Um, also, yeah. Dolores. I, I forget the exact uh, yeah. etymology of Dolores, but it's basically like depressing and sad. Yeah, it's
1: sadness, yeah. Like Dolores. Yeah. I finally remember my Charlemagne. <laughs> okay.
0: So we've got this awful woman... Who's in the position of power at the ministry? She's the senior undersecretary to the minister. She's sitting at his right hand at, at Harry's trial, and then we find out she's the new Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher due to a technicality, whereby if Dumbledore's unable to find a new teacher, um, the ministry will appoint one, and they appoint her.
1: Right, which is which is the which is the first of these educational decrees. Umbridge is a mid-level ministry
0: uh Uh,
1: umbridge is a a bureaucratic functionary (laughs) of the ministry of magic
0: Mm -hmm.
1: she works for cornelius fudge and she ends up here at hogwarts to affect fudge's agenda and at this point fudge's agenda is discredit dumbledore discredit harry deny 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 that voldemort is back and anything other than and anything that could contribute to those what he thinks of as conspiracy theories being promulgated you got to nip it in the bud
0: and and see and making sure that the magical because the but the part of fudge's conspiracy is that dumbledore is trying to replace him keeping the students from having the magical education they would need to be minions of Dumbledore to be on his side so like purposely not teaching them magic
1: and that Dumbledore has embraced the dreaded half-breeds you know in in the mm. past like Lupin and and Hagrid mm-hmm. and um and in her first class Umbridge actually mentions that so we know that Umbridge also uh believes in the uh in the blood system you know the the pure bloods are the best but again she is a bureaucratic functionary and that brings us to um the political theorist Hannah Arendt who wrote a a book following the trial of Adolf Eichmann uh in the early 1960s um Eichmann was one of the nazis who was in charge of the final solution Uh, He was the one who basically was in charge of the logistics around the death camps uh, in Nazi Germany. And Arendt coined a term in that writing, the banality of evil. And I found an article as I was trying to research this, um, because when I think of Umbridge, I think of the phrase banality of evil. And um, this article from Haaretz in May 2019 by Dr. Michal Aharany, she says, um, By banality of evil, Arendt had in mind two interconnecting ideas. The first is that Eichmann was not a satanic figure or, for that matter, an extreme anti-Semite. He was an ordinary person. He had no motives for his actions other than promoting his own advancement. His deeds were monstrous, but the man himself was banal. The notion of the banality of evil refers to the paradox created by totalitarian society. This is the important part. In which an unprecedented crime is executed optimally, by an ordinary bureaucratic apparatus. It suggests the disparity between the vast dimensions of the crime and the unexceptional persona of the criminal. The, uh, the writer of this article goes on to say, the second element that Arendt perceived in Eichmann was thoughtlessness, a trait she defined as the almost total inability ever to look at anything from the other fellow's point of view. But this did not absolve him of responsibility for his deeds. The lesson to be learned from the Eichmann trial in her view was that this sort of thoughtlessness, which is, quote, by no means identical with stupidity, can, quote, wreak more havoc than all the evil instincts taken together, which perhaps are inherent in man, unquote. Her primary argument was that in the atmosphere prevailing in Nazi Germany, Eichmann could not have distinguished between good and evil. Arendt termed him a, quote, new type of criminal, unquote, who commits his crimes, quote, under circumstances that make it well nigh impossible to know or to feel that he is doing wrong, unquote. Wow. And and I, I don't know if you see umbrage in that,
0: but, I, mean, but I, absolutely. I do. So if we, I mean, this some of these, I don't think Hannah Arendt's been brought into it, nor Eichmann, but if you want to draw the parallels, right? Death Eaters are, are Nazis. Mm-hmm. All this this fascism and blood purity is, is led by, I guess, Voldemort is Hitler. Mm-hmm. And in this case, Umbridge is Eichmann in that she's responsible for the logistics of carrying out these atrocities. She's the one presiding over, as we'll remember in book seven, over the, um, the phony trials trying to prove that muggle-born witches and wizards are not actually magical. Um, she's the one that when when I think it's when the kids are, or the teenagers are talking to Sirius about Umbridge. Um, he's the one, he says, the, the world isn't split into good people and death eaters. We've all got both light and dark inside us because they're trying to think like, wait, is she a death eater? She's not a follower of Voldemort at all, but she's a follower of this like totalitarian regime that rejects the truth. And in doing so furthers the power of, of fascism, of the evil one. I, th- I think that's a very tight parallel, and you're and and you're right about the bureaucracy of the ministry, which we get a little glimpse into in this book. This kind of like it's just an office build. I mean, it's a magical office building, but like there's people going and doing their jobs every day who, under the wrong leadership of Fudge, end up furthering all this awfulness: the torture of students, the um, spreading of discord, the re- rejection of diversity in the magical community. Um, and it's just business as usual. And and we see that. And then that ends up getting explicitly tied to Voldemort when he takes over and, and has like sleeper cells kind of wake up in the in the um, ministry and, and takes over by, they kill the next minister of magic and put their guy in who's under an imperious curse. Mm-hmm. And for Umbridge, it may as well be the same thing as working for Fudge. She's just happily ticking along.
1: And it, it allows her to perhaps embrace a worldview that she she held but perhaps didn't completely trump it. And so Umbridge is that is is that Eichmann figure who is the 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 faceless bureaucrat who has gained some semblance of power and then uses it in in a way that she seems to think is actually helpful. Mm-hmm. And in a totalitarian state, um, we, it's called that because it seeks total control over the life of the individual. It severs the divide between public life and private life. That's what totalitarianism is mm-hmm. by definition. There is no longer any privacy. Mm-hmm. Everything you do is seen by the state and controlled by the state. And we see that's what Umbridge is doing in book five with all of the educational decrees. Right. If you want to have a club, you need it to be Stamped by me. Right. right. And
0: she'll read your mail too. <laughs> <laughs>
1: right. Right. Um, and, and I just I wanted to talk about the banality of evil here with Umbridge because we we see it, I, I think we're seeing it more and more as we as our world is cycling back into
0: mm-hmm. a
1: a season of of authoritarianism
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and fascism. Um, it, not just in the United States, but in in, in Eastern Europe and in other places in the world, um, we have to be on the lookout for not just the easy to spot horrible things, but also all of the stuff that's in the middle that is that is the, the, the apparatus that is making all that happen.
0: And the, um, shoot, hold on a second. I had something that's really good. It's be really worth waiting for.
1: A, a book about this, by the way, is by Timothy Snyder. It's a little tiny book called uh, On Tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century. Mm. And he actually talks about Hannah Arendt in here quite a bit. Really good book.
0: I realize I got that quotation wrong. That was about Crouch, but similar, similar, you know, does Crouch, like Umbridge, are not officially death eaters. And yet they both have led to atrocious acts. But I was thinking of, you know, back to our, end of book four quotation from Dumbledore about doing what is right and doing what is easy. Umbridge Mm -hmm. does what is easy because the, the rising totalitarianism around her benefits her. It promotes a worldview that she agrees with, which is that, you know, pure blood's good, everyone else bad. And she's able to gain power within that. She is very much choosing the path of what is easiest for her and will get her power and will get her advancement. Um, we see her in in the memories rising through the ranks and becoming more important by having this, you know, additional becoming headmistress of Hogwarts for a short time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she is not following the way of truth, of um, equality, of justice. She is following her own path, kind of typical Slytherin, and in doing so, espousing these views that are then used by by the evil ones.
1: Mm. That 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 reminds me of our our scripture quote for today. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. We usually stop the quotation right there. When people, when people quote this, they don't say the, the next bit of the verse, because fear expects punishment. That, that part of the verse actually, I think, changes the meaning that we add, we, we put on these words. Fear expects punishment. And so umbrage exists in this world of, of, of punishment. The first thing she does to Harry is punish him right? Mm-hmm. When he speaks out, she is afraid of what he stands for. Everything that he says makes her afraid, not just because he himself uh, is not a pureblood, not just because he's saying something that's going to destabilize the ministry that she works for. Um, it's, it's a whole host of things that, that have made Professor Umbridge afraid. And she responds to that by punishing,
0: Same thing with her. Her fear of we learn her dislike for what she calls half breeds. She might say comes from some kind of philosophical head place about magical purity, but it comes down to fear in the end. She's terrified of those centaurs, Um, and the you know the teenagers capitalize that by having you know kind of using them to carry her off in a herd. Um, But she's she's afraid of diversity, of difference, of something that's different than her upbringing of being a pure blood. "Quote unquote," uh, which
1: the fear of diversity runs through this book, but also through the entire series of Harry Potter. And one of the reasons, one of the things she does as headmistress, is begin that uh, that that quest for. Purity on several levels, mm-hmm. uh, ideological purity, uh, also a the desire for everybody just to fall in line behind her, not to have to, to be uniform behind her, um, and that also comes out of that fear. But then Dumbledore comes in back in at the end, bringing love back into it. There's always love coming back into these books at the ends of them.
0: I'm remembering in book seven when he when Harry breaks into her office and finds the undesirable number one poster in her like desk drawer with his face on it. And there's a little like sticky note on it that says to be punished.
1: Does it really he still
0: sees herself <sighs> as like his teacher in a lot of ways. And I think about, wow, I'm sure Dumbledore espouses, I'm sure, you know, he's in charge of the school for most of the time and they have, they have detentions, right. They have punishments, but not in like a punitive sense, but in a like restorative way, almost. I mean, they're not doing lines. They're going to, you know, po- slightly problematically help, help, the staff. Uh, they're going to go out with Hagrid and the yeah, staff. I guess it depends on which teachers giving the detention. Clean yeah. the dungeons with no, you know, no need to wear protective uh, PPE in the dungeon with Snape. Um, <laughs> yeah. No need to bring your gloves. So Yeah, but they do Umbridge tend to be more chore
1: based. They're chore based. Yeah, it's
0: chore <laughs> based versus like, and I think they, they maybe learn something from that. Whereas Umbridge purely wants to cause pain and a lasting impression, literally in their skin, to have mm-hmm. them fall in line.
1: When we when we stack Umbridge up against Dumbledore, obviously we we see in Dumbledore this desire to foster diversity. He wants a Hogwarts community that is that that reflects the wizarding world, right? Um, that has a, a a a
0: werewolf as a teacher, having their their wonderful half giant caretaker become the care of magical creatures teacher because he knows magical creatures and how to care for them. And he was unjustly expelled. All right. So
1: anything else we want to talk about today? I think like we've had I a pretty like good discussion.
0: I learned a lot in the course. I mean, I always love preparing for these podcasts because I get to talk about something I love with a, you know, a great friend of mine. So I, but I especially love episodes where I learned something in the course of it. So thank you. I think you've, this has given me a new lens and um, always there's, you know, There's something new with these books. They are rich, and um, the world is indeed a rich text to reflect on and see lessons all around that we can apply to our faith.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Podcast for Nerdy Christians. You can find us at nerdychristians.com or on social media, facebook.com slash nerdychristians, and on Twitter, at nerdychristians. That's Carrie. You can find me on Twitter, at RevAdamThomas, or on my new website, adamthomas.net. All of my fantasy novels are up on my website. You can... Uh, Buy them on Amazon.com as well. Check out Seven of Shadow, the final volume of my four book fantasy series, The Shields of Sularal. And you can always find both Carrie and me right here on the next and final episode of our mini season, season three and three quarters, this next episode of the podcast for nerdy Christians.
0: And now we pray that God may give you the eyes to see and the endurance to confront the sins of the world of interlocking suicidal machines. May your anger be righteous and fuel you to participate in the dismantling of such sinful systems. And may God grant you the grace to embrace love over fear. Amen.